On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire lit. Like a path, they clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and on the podcast today, I have a different kind of guest. Uh, he's not exactly a first responder, but he, he does uh, work, with fo- work with people every day. Um, I have Dr. Campsey with me, and uh, the good doctor has an excellent story to share about his recovery from an injury, and I think it's, we were just talking about it a minute ago, I think it's very important for anybody that's going through PTSD to hear this story and to hear, uh, you know, the way he recovered from what he dealt with. So without saying too much, Dr. Campsey, I'll turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. Thank you, Phil. Appreciate it. So I'm Mike Campsey. I'm a uh, interventional cardiologist at Wheeling Hospital I'm the chief of cardiology, uh, cardiology at Wheeling. Did my training at Allegheny Health Network, which back in those days was Allegheny General Hospital, and uh, went to Penn State Medical School uh, prior to that. Um, you know, I chose cardiology, um, chose medicine, I should say, because I really felt that it was going to give me a chance to help people and to, you know, while make still make a good living. And I chose cardiology over and above most other specialties uh, simply because it gave me a chance to work with my hands and still see patients and so forth. And that's really what it's done for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, um, not somebody who needs to be at an academic center, you know, where I'm constantly studying the, you know, latest, greatest valve replacement or something like that. That's not important to me right now. But in uh, November of 2017, or not 2017, 2021, 
everything sort of came to a grinding halt when I had a, uh, I guess I had a massive stroke. I can tell you a little bit about it. I got up that morning to uh, exercise. Usually I get up around 5.15, 5.20 in the morning. And uh, I had a, a meeting at the hospital that day at 7. So I was trying to like get everything done early. And uh, I did a quick uh, hit routine on the, on the um, Echo bike. So think Airdyne bike. And uh, got off the bike after about eight minutes and uh, went over to do some jumping jacks, calisthenics, and uh, noticed that my right arm wasn't kind of doing what I wanted it to do. And the next thing I know, I'm sort of laying at the base of the treadmill on my way out the door. I'm playing with my right hand, which is actually pasted to the floor. That's what I, it seemed like it was just stuck to the floor. You know, at that point in time, I guess I realized that I needed help, and I realized that I was having a stroke. From there, I went, kind of crawled about 20 feet across the floor, and and so my right arm wasn't working, my right leg wasn't working, and I had no speech. The only three, the only things that would come out of my mouth were ma, ma, ma. So I um, crawled over to the... um, bottom of the basement stairs. Uh, I have no idea how long that took me. It took me at least a half hour, I would say. I have no recollection of how I got from that point to the bottom of the stairs, but I know I got over there. And once I got to the bottom of the stairs, I was able to manage to make enough noise to pull the gate down, and that made enough noise between me yelling, ma, 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 uh, that I woke up my wife, who's two floors up behind closed doors, sound machine on, fan on, and somehow she came running down the stairs. She saw me, knew immediately what had happened. She said, Mike, you're having a stroke, which by now I knew. And she uh, alerted uh, EMS. And uh, EMS came to the house. Uh, The first person there was um, a gentleman from our local fire department. Um, I don't know if you know him or not. Good guy by the name of uh, Hillebrand. He was coming in kind of slowly, you know, sauntering in, I guess, and my my daughter went out and hurried him up, and he came in, and he noticed that I was um, had no movement on my right side, and, you know, my facial droop, and my speech wasn't there. So he got EMS then to come sort of step on the pedal a little bit, and they got there. They did their evaluation, and they asked us if we wanted to be uh, life-lighted, I have about 10 acres in Claysville, so they were able to land in the front yard. While they asked me, where do we want to go to Allegheny General? Do we want to go to UPMC? Um, But we told them that we wanted to go to WVU because that's where I worked. So it took about 20 minutes, I think, for Life Flight to get there. And um, from that point, uh, you know, they wheeled me out on the stretcher to the front part of the yard and they put me in the back of the the, um, the helicopter, which is a very tight fit. Didn't didn't do much for my claustrophobia at that moment in time, but I had bigger problems to worry about. Once we got to WVU, which is about a 17-minute flight, you know, I was relieved we got there, and uh, they took me down to the emergency department for a brief stop. And and actually, my this the CEO of our 
HVI, our Heart and Vascular Institute, was there, met me there. Um, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon and uh, had a few, he, you know, had a few words with me and then they took me quickly to the CT scanner. Um, it's important to rule out any kind of bleed situation because if you have a bleed, then they can't give you a thrombolytics. So they don't just blindly give you something. They need to make sure that there's no bleed there. And they did. Dr. Campsey, for anybody that's listening that doesn't understand what you just said, would you explain thrombolytics and, and what that oh, does? Yeah. So thrombolytics are clot buster, right? They are, it's a, it's a um, medicine that we give intravenously most of the time. You can give it intra-arterially, but um, you give it intravenously for a uh, stroke. Uh, you can also give it for heart attacks and blood clots that go to the lung and so forth. You can give it for that too. But I got it because I, one, I showed up in time with a stroke and uh, two, because there was no bleed involved. And then after that, after the lytics, they took me to the neurointerventional suite, which is like a, it's like a cath lab, but the neurointerventional guys do it. And uh, they uh, intubated me. Um, I would imagine they paralyzed me because they can't have any movement when they're working on your brain. And then they went in through my groin, they um, in the artery in my groin, and they went up and they took pictures of my brain arteries and they fished the clot out. Didn't give me a stent, didn't get balloon angioplasty. They just went up and they sucked the clot out and they got the majority of it out. Next thing I know, I'm uh, awake or wakening up, I guess, in um, the ICU, the neuro ICU. And my wife told me that when she, when the nurse asked me questions, if I knew who I was and so forth, when I spoke, it just all sort of came out like a word salad, right? Just a bunch of words that meant nothing at all. You know, obviously my wife was really concerned uh, at that point in time, as I was, obviously. my daughter was there. I remember seeing Dr. Dagabati. He's one of our um, our chief of cardiology down at WVU too. So that that was the big part of like getting to recovery phase. You know, I was discharged from the hospital within two days. I would say that I had the majority of my recovery physically. At the, within those two days, I went from, you know, moving my hand part of the way up to my face to getting it above my face or above my jawline, really. My leg moved pretty well. Um, I was able to walk out of the hospital. I didn't get wheel, no wheelchair or anything like that. They took me out. But the diagnosis was cryptogenic stroke. And cryptogenic stroke is a stroke that you don't have a source from. And, uh, you know, they did everything for me. They did a transesophageal echo. They did cardiac MRI. They, I'm sorry, they did transesophageal echo. They did echo. They did uh, brain MRI. They scanned my vessels. They did all that stuff, and they couldn't find a reason for me to have a stroke. So I left there on aspirin, Plavix, and a cholesterol-lowering medicine. But by the way, my cholesterol was like, my LDL cholesterol was 83, which is low anyway. But I'm still taking it to this day. 
Then I did well. I did well enough over the next couple of weeks. I got enrolled in, in, in speech therapy, went there. Um, it was funny. My, my first speech therapy session, which was really the first week out, she uh, asked me to name like, I don't know, she asked me to name as many fruits and vegetables as I could in a minute. And I could name like two. I don't even know what they were now, but that wasn't very many from a, from my standpoint. And um, then I got enrolled in uh, physical therapy for my hand, basically. My hand was not functioning, wasn't still functioning normally. Typing was uh, rough. Um, I just lost the finer movements of dexterity at that point in time. Um, and I think from there I had a one memorable moment when I came back to work three weeks later, which, by the way, was too early, way too early. But, you know, I just couldn't see sitting at home. Uh, so we're all in this room together down in the physician's private dining room. And there's physicians and administrators in the room. And at the time, I, had, I was the chief medical officer here. And everybody's going around the room, and they're saying what they think about something. And one of the docs pointed to me and said, well, what do you think about it? And I had an episode of uh, expressive aphasia. Expressive aphasia is where you trying to say something, where you're trying to say something, and you just can't get the words out or what you say comes out abnormal. And uh, that's what I did. And, and it was, I was just so utterly embarrassed by myself at that point in time. But I came back to work the next day and the next day and the next day, and eventually, you know, my uh, expressions got better and so forth. But uh, that was one thing that I really remember happening that was uh, a fairly embarrassing moment for me. One of the most difficult things for me to overcome has been the anxiety that was associated with my stroke. And uh, it began, I think, right after the holiday. So probably that first week after January is when it really set in. Which, when I think about it, you know, January and like that time of year is always kind of, you know, when, you, when you're cruising through the holidays... And you just like, I just dipped down a little bit. I'm a little bit low then anyway. But it just really kicked off at that point in time. And, and when I say the anxiety, these, you know, it's really dark thoughts that begin, you know. And uh, I really couldn't tell you if I was going to, you know, I didn't know if I was going to hurt my family, hurt myself, what was going to happen. And... Uh, that really, I think my wife calls them, you know, dark January, dark February. You know, in those early months, it was pretty rough. And I ended up seeing a physical therapist, or not a physical therapist, an actual therapist in town in uh, Wheeling here who happened to be a, a therapist who deals in PTSD. It was good for me that he was... Um, a therapist who dealt with PTSD survivors because, and I just, you know, 
I don't know that I believed him when he told me that I think you have PTSD, but when I went home and I read about it, you know, it's, it's just something that happens to you that you didn't want to happen to you. And that can kick it off. And, you know, people react differently. Obviously, you get depression and anxiety, uh, et cetera. Um, but I think I had everything. I think I had depression, anxiety, lack of confidence, lack of courage. Um, it just all, like, came crashing down. And therapy worked for me to a certain extent. It certainly helped um, me to begin to cope with it. But he recommended the, the therapist recommended that I see a, a neural or see um, uh, my primary care physician and get prescribed a medicine, which I did. You know, I, I'm uh, I got prescribed uh, one of the the um, sertraline or something like that, and that also helped. I got online. I was looking online for, you know, courses on courage, courses on confidence. I took those. I did meditation for sure. Um, I didn't, I really focused on breath work. The Wim Hof method has helped me a lot. Um, I also worked on the uh, cold therapy has helped. The cold showers, I've been doing those for a year now. I'll tell you what, that, that builds your resilience for sure. I am definitely a much more resilient person because of the cold showers. And that's every morning, right? That's every morning. Yeah. yeah. Actually, more recently, I've started doing cold, cold plunges, which is where you actually get into a tub of cold water, 50 to 60 degrees. And uh, that helps a good bit, too. I can tell you that for me, it's all about sort of day-to-day forming the right habits, forming that routine every morning. You know, when I get up in the morning, I, I, you know, go to the coffee maker, I make a cup of coffee, and then I usually sit down at the computer and I do something creative with my brain for the first half hour or 45 minutes, um, whether it's, you know, working on a, um, a blog or something like that that I want to do or... Um, just do something that's creative. And uh, I remember there's a, um, there's a book, it's called Better by um, Atul Gawande. And it's about medicine. But in the end, he gives us uh, these five things that we should do if we want to be a positive deviant or somebody who's going to be you know, positive in the world. And he says, you've got to write every day. You've got to be willing to change. You've got to ask an unscripted question of your patients. You should be willing to count something, is what he says. Those, those all make sense to me, but the one that made the most sense to me was, oh, and the other ones don't complain. And so I never complain about anything anymore. I'm not sure I was really much of a complainer to begin with, but I don't complain at all. I'm willing to roll with the punches with change. I am trying to create. I don't feel like I'm the most creative person, but I'm trying to be better at it. And um, I just have not been able to settle in on counting something, which is really what he's talking about is study something. And uh, so I think that that's helped me too to get through this. 
And then, you know, what else do I do in the morning? That's when I do my breath work. That's when I do my plunges and I do exercise, you know. So if I could tell people what to do, you know, to help them recover, I'd say find a routine. I think routine is something that we all need every day. Um, I would say, you know, if you think you're having a stroke, you need to get help. You know, if you, if it even enters your mind, go get checked out because it's those first hours afterwards that made the biggest difference to me is that I got help. Um, I'd say take your medicines after your stroke. You know, don't fight it. Just take them. They're going to help you in the long run. I would highly recommend breath work. Maybe a cold shower to start with. And uh, I think you'll find that those changes will be amazing. I think that's good advice. And, and I think you're familiar that on this podcast, we we talk to a lot of guys that have worked as first responders, that continue to work as first responders, that see and deal with things every single day that the normal person doesn't. Um, so I think some of the things that you mentioned would probably be very applicable to, to those guys as they're trying to deal with the things that they see and the things that they have to deal with every single day. So thank you for sharing sharing those. Um, we're, we're about wrapping up, but let me put you on the spot for a second. This podcast is about stories. You've been a doctor for quite some time now. Tell me a good story. Hmm. Tell me a good patient story without violating HIPAA. How about that? Well, I can <laughs> tell you. I, I can tell you. Actually, I'll give you two or three stories that are very brief, each one of them. I'm not a great storyteller, but I'll tell you. And these actually all happened within the last four weeks. One is a woman that I took care of who um, is this sweet lady, 73 years old and um, thin, but she came in with chest pain. And uh, we ended up taking her into the cath lab. She made enzymes, so that means you have, uh, you have a heart attack. So we took her to the cath lab, and sure enough, she had this, this OM lesion, obtuse marginal lesion. And so one of her blood vessels was 95 to 99% blocked. And I opened it up and took her back upstairs to the room and uh, came back the next day talking to her. You know, she keeps she keeps referring to, her, to herself as an athlete. I'm an athlete. I'm an athlete. I'm thinking, you know, I've heard it before, you know, but I'll ask her, what do you do? And I said, what makes you an athlete? And she said, well, I, I've run the Boston Marathon uh, a couple of times. Um, I've uh, run in, I can't remember the number of marathons that she's run. And I climb mountains. And that that to me... I thought, okay, you climb mountains. Um, how do you climb mountains? And she started, she whips out her phone and she shows me all these pictures. She climbed um, El Capitan. She has climbed um, the, what was it, the Eye of the Needle. And uh, so she's showing me these pictures. And, like, she's not going back, like, many, many years. She ran her first marathon at 56 years of age. She started climbing when she was 50 years old. And I was just so inspired by her. Such an, such an inspiring story. And uh, another guy, totally different, 91-year-old gentleman. I just saw him like maybe a week ago, and he came back into the office the other day. He's in for atrial fibrillation. His heart's all over the place, you know. 
um, racing. Um, but just going in and seeing him and realizing how upbeat he was and optimistic he was, um, it just made me realize like the people that live the longest are the folks that are the most upbeat and optimistic. He had, uh, of course, it takes good family history. He's got a, a couple of sisters. One lived to 95 and the other lived to 99. But he was dead set on beating them. He said, I'm going to beat them. So we'll see. And then the third one that I remember, and I, th- I think it's, it just reminds me of just the absolute courage that people have. This guy came in, and I'd seen him in the office several months ago, but um, he had um, mitral valve disease, aortic valve disease, his EF's low. He came in, his kidneys are failing. He's swelling up with fluid. And uh, one of my partners had seen him and offered him an angioplasty and a stent to to be done, and I went up and I talked to him and I said, you know, we can certainly do that, but it's not going to fix everything that you have. And he thought about it for a bit and he said, you know, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with going home and essentially passing. And I thought, how courageous that man is to be looking it in the eye and saying, I'm good with that. That was pretty impressive. Yeah, it really is. Well, Dr. Campsey, thank you for taking uh, some time out this afternoon and sharing your incredible story. And then uh, really three pretty good stories. Certainly uh, inspiring. I appreciate you being on the podcast and I hope our listeners really got something out of this. So thank you for being here. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you enjoy. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. Show notes are written by Jennifer Rowick. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this show, please visit storiesfromtheroadpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.